Hi there, I'm Dan Jones and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and on this podcast I have long informal conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. This week I spoke with Dr. Joanna Deplich. Dr. Deplich knows a lot about climate policy. Uh, she's been following climate negotiations at the political level, at the international level, for a number of decades now. She's a fellow at the Cambridge Center for Environment, Energy, and Natural Resource Governance, uh, where her interests uh, revolve around international climate change politics, global environmental negotiations. I became aware of Dr. Deplich's work at the Cambridge Center for Climate Science event that we had a couple of months ago at the British Antarctic Survey. It's the uh, we had a 1.5 degree C meeting um, with folks who know about the science of that. There were speakers who knew about the science of it, speakers who knew about the politics of it, and um, really the the policy area and the politics area is not something that I know very much about. So this conversation and this episode was basically my opportunity to sit down with somebody who has been following the politics and the policy stuff at the international level, and uh, to just try to learn as much as I can from them, basically. And that's what I did. I hope that you find it uh, useful on some level as well. Uh, Joanna is also the editor of a, the journal Climate Policy, and you can find that at climatepolicy.com. Um, and she's also taught, supervised, and examined on climate change in uh, several departments, so, well, several courses in Cambridge, I should say. She does have a Twitter. You can follow her at Joanna Deplidge. And that's, uh, well, I was about to spell the name and then I remembered you've downloaded the episode. It's just at her name. So she's uh, one of the lucky folks who just has her direct Twitter handle. We had a, a really, for me, a very in-depth conversation. Um, uh, like I said, I don't know that much about climate policy and this was my opportunity to learn from someone. We talked about the recent uh, COP meeting that happened in uh, in Poland a few months ago, the Conference of the Parties is what I uh, what that stands for. We talked about uh, the divestment movement as well. Uh, various universities are talking about, and some actually have, uh, divesting their investments from fossil fuels because, uh, as we discussed in the episode, that uh, is one of the things that needs to be looked at, right? When we're examining different ways to respond to climate change, a big one is where's the money going, where are the investments going? And I'll let her elaborate on that in the episode. Um, if you want to get updates about the podcast, you can follow us at Climate SciPod. Uh, that's our Twitter handle. Yeah, okay. So I do have an announcement to make about the podcast. Um, I still really enjoy doing it, and I intend to keep doing it for as long as I can. Um, I may need to drop the frequency down a little bit. I might have to, uh, over the next couple of months... Uh, I'm going to see, I might have to go monthly on the episode releases. Um, that's just due to honestly being totally overwhelmed. Um, this is a, a, just a one person operation. Well, one plus all of my guests who graciously uh, give up their time and energy to, to be on the podcast. But um, it's getting, it's getting hard to, to maintain a two weekly schedule with uh, just me managing everything. Uh, I'm also applying for some fellowships and stuff and, trying to do the usual academic things that one has to do in terms of papers and whatnot. But it's it's not a question of uh, loving it, because I really do love uh, working on this, and I want to keep going, and I think it's a good thing to do, a good a good way to, 
a good way to do some some outreach and to have these conversations. So I will keep going, but I might have to go monthly. I will keep you updated on that. Uh, that's not imminent. I've got a couple of episodes that are ready to go, so I'm going to keep trying to roll those out on a two-weekly schedule until I uh, make a decision about having to go monthly or not. But um, thanks for sticking with, uh, if you're a long-time listener, thanks for sticking with the podcast. Thanks for listening and subscribing. Uh, and thanks for your reviews and for your ratings. Uh, please keep those up. Those do help the podcast. They help me move things along and they help me show that it's a good thing to do. Um, so, yeah, a, let's see. I think that's it in terms of announcements. Yeah, it's looking like a busy few months. Um, I'm also... Uh, jumping through some other hurdles related to, um, uh, you know, immigration stuff. So that's all going to be taking up a good bit of my time here in the UK. Um, it's obviously a big subject right now. And it's something important that one has to take care of, um, when you're living and working abroad that obviously just, uh, there's nowhere around that stuff. It's going to take, it's, it's going to take the center stage for some time, but, uh, yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and get into it. That's the announcements. Uh, at Climate SciPod for updates and uh, in the future, and uh, at Joanna Deplage if you want to follow her work and uh, look up the Climate Policy Journal as well. I really I spent a little bit of time with it, and it's just it's such a different world from the one that I'm used to that I found it very interesting and informative. Uh, okay, yep, here we go. Let's get into this interview with Dr. Joanna Deplage. <laughs> the Electricity Policy Research Group, which sounds very techy, yeah. but actually they've got quite a lot of people there who've been doing climate change for eons mm. and are very good on the policy and politics side. That would be um, great. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I would appreciate that. I'm always up the for it. The the lawyers, the lawyers. Mm. We've got some um, you know, legal experts, again, who've been doing this for, for 20 years yeah. who would have a lot to say. Yeah, no, that would be great. We, and especially because although the podcast kind of started as... And we'll probably still largely kind of revolve around the science and the scientists. Of course, of course. It makes a lot of sense to me to branch out a little bit and to have folks, you know, from policy, who study policy and who study the economics of it and who study the different aspects of it to yes. have them on. And, yes, Because um, I think a lot of my listeners are also kind of in the field as well in terms of the science. And yeah. I suspect that a lot of them are in a similar boat like that I am, where I, I'm surprisingly... I don't know as much as I maybe could about the policy side of things, and that um, just because that's not what my kind of job ends up being, no, exactly. my role ends up being, yeah. And you don't need to know the politics mm. in order to do your good science. Yeah, that's and in right. a sense, us as, as as political scientists or as those working in the social sciences, we tend to completely trust mm. the science, so we just accept at face value yeah. the science that gets offered to us. Mm principally through the IPCC, and that we don't really seek to kind of investigate that um, anymore. That's really interesting, yeah, because I think um, one of the things that that brings to mind is that 
it's pretty it's a challenge uh, communicating the uncertainties mm. the error bars the like well mm. here's what we're confident about and here's what we're not confident about yeah i mean from your from your perspective as somebody who's ingesting that information does the ipcc report and process do a good job at framing the oh here's the bits we're really confident about and here's the bits we're less confident about well, I think it does a fantastic job, actually, and it has been, it, it, it's, it, it's been very thoughtful in how it's done this. Yeah. So I have been following the IPCC from the second um, assessment report, not that I'm a scientist, but I find yeah. that the, yeah. the, the process of the production of the science extremely interesting and the way in which the IPCC is there specifically to provide science to the political process but at the same time, it has to maintain its scientific integrity. Yeah, absolutely. And that is really interesting. So from, from the mid-1990s, the IPCC has gone through um, a load of reflection exercises as to how to present um, uncertainty. Yeah. Um, what was this name? Um, I, the, the name escapes me now, but there were, there were several scientists in the IPCC who were involved in doing that, and a lot of working papers were put out, specifically how will we, mm. how will we communicate this? Um, what, will, what does uncertainty actually mean? Mm-hmm. What does very uncertain, less uncertain, certain, these particular terms right. that then equate to a particular percentage of likelihood? Yeah, and I think that, that, that that's very helpful to policymakers it might sometimes seem a bit overcautious. Mm. I think for those of us that would like scientists to maybe be a little bit more gung ho mm. um, in terms of in terms of their warnings um, right. that they give out. But I think it has to say it has the IPCC and its language has to say absolutely scrupulously, you know, objective. Mm. Yeah, because uh, as a scientist, you don't want to make a big prediction that later turns out to be wrong. So we're always kind of cautious we're always kind of um conservative even in terms of how we present you know when i say always i mean the tendency is for scientists to be a little bit more on the conservative side and it's interesting actually because i guess the ipcc has to be because a summary for policymakers have to make it through an international negotiation process and it's interesting if if you compare the summaries for policymakers with the underlying reports the (laughs) underlying reports often a lot more scary than actually the summary for policymakers certainly aspects of them have been because obviously the the underlying reports will include all the all the different research papers including those that have the slightly more um, extreme or worrisome um, Mm. projections whereas the summary for policymakers essentially produce a kind of consensus middle of the road Mm. uh, view i guess that the problem then that's faced is that the that the climate deniers or the climate skeptics or those who are against strong action on climate change for whatever reason, um, is that they don't have the same scruples. Yeah, they are mm. perfectly happy to use strong language that is not backed up by science. Yes. They don't have to cite um, academic papers. They don't have to get consensus amongst governments for what they are actually saying. Right. So you have that real kind of imbalance in communicative power because the sceptics can kind of say what they like, which yeah. then gets picked up by the newspapers because this is a lot more newsworthy than, yeah. than the kind of it's, cautious language. It's bombastic. It's, you know, Precisely. And it's easy to yes. get people to click on links if they are, you know, if they have big scary headlines mm-hmm. or big headlines that sound revelatory. I remember one from a couple of uh, a couple of months ago, and I forget the details, but I think the headline was talking about, you know, oh, well, scientists have discovered a new uh, source of, you know, geothermal heat in Antarctica, mm. a, new, a new volcano, and this was a very small scale. You know, this is not like. Um, but I think the way that some news outlets and some uh, maybe climate denier folks who lean that way presented it as if, oh, no, it's just this volcano here that's, that's warming up everything. And, um, and that's not a statement that, that has no scientific 
you know, merit at all, all because yes. the, the, the scale of energy is just so vastly different. You know, yes. one volcano compared to the entire atmosphere and ocean. But um, I think that's an example of, you know, somebody who isn't held to really high standards can just pick that up and, and run with it and present it to the world as if the whole of climate science is a house of cards and they have found the one thing that makes the whole you know argument topple yeah but isn't, isn't it interesting though because we've had those oh we found that the, the, the cause of global warming you know before it was sunspots wasn't it, it was sunspots that mm. was affecting the climate then it was something else and now yeah. it's this this volcano <laughs> in, in wherever it is but but basically the fundamental science of climate change as from the IPCC's first assessment report in 1990 hasn't changed yeah. one bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the actual the fundamentals have stayed exactly the same, mm-hmm. and the warnings have just got um, more and more alarming. I'm so. always fond of repeating. Um, I've done it a bunch on this podcast, so the kind of repeat listeners will have heard it from me a thousand times, but that's okay. Um, I like to repeat. Um, one of my old professors, Scott Denning, uh, really likes to hammer that point in by saying, "Yeah, mm-hmm. if you put carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere, you get more energy down here." And when you put a kettle on the stove, okay, this is in the States where you put the kettle on the stove, you don't have an, an electric kettle. Or yes. when you turn your electric kettle on, the, the, that energy is going to go somewhere. Yes. You know, the extra energy that we've added to the surface of the earth from putting more carbon dioxide up in the atmosphere isn't just going to vanish. That's right. going to go into warming up the ocean temperatures, warming up the uh, land surface, changing the hydrological cycle, changing circulation pattern that goes into all of those melting ice yeah. and it goes into all of that. I mean, if you double the atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gases, yes, something is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to my mind, I always find that interesting because I, I don't find the science of climate change that complex, really. <laughs> to me, it, it's pretty basic stuff. You yeah. know, I, I've explained it to, 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 to primary school children and, and they get it. They get it. Yeah. yeah. Well, the scary thing is, I mean, uh, this is something we talked about on here on the podcast as well, too. You know, there's this Naomi Oreskes and Conway mm. book, The uh, Merchants of Doubt, and they, mm. they have this. Uh, have you seen that one? Do you, of course. You yeah, 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 yeah. I, I imagine. I thought. I thought probably you would yes. say, yeah, yeah. Because, um, and they have this, you know, very well-documented case of like, no, there's a small set of people who are uh, intentionally in- injecting confusion into the climate change science conversation, mm-hmm. um, you know, leaving the politics aside aside for now, but they're just going right for the science of it, trying to inject uncertainty on that level. Um, and it's, uh, it's, just, it's a small set of people, but like you said, because they are... Um, not trying to go through the traditional peer-reviewed scientific channels, they kind of say whatever they want, and it makes as big of a splash as they as they can afford it to. In terms of you know how many how widely can they afford to get something published? And all you have and to I'm, do is just inject a little bit of doubt, hmm. and then large swathes of the general public that might be receptive to those kinds of views anyway, hmm. then they start to lap it up. Although, although to be honest, we're talking about audiences mostly in the United States, aren't mm. we, to be frank? I, th- I think in, the, in, in Europe, we do have a very, very broad consensus that human-induced climate change is a reality. And I think that yeah. has been the case for very many years, barring a few extremists in the Conservative Party. What do you think the difference is? You know, uh, if you, yeah. Are you happy to speculate on, or maybe have some thoughts on, why has the kind of um, sceptic-slash-denier message taken root, especially like in the US South, yeah. so much compared to over in Europe here. No, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I wrote a paper in 2005, I think it was, that was called um, Against the Grain, the US and the Climate Change Regime, or something like that. And it was arguing that the US is really um, this kind of lone ranger in, in mm. the climate change field, that every other country is 
conforms to the consensus views about A, the reality of climate change, B, about the need for developed countries to take the lead, about a whole range of, of, of mm. things. And the US was really out, out on a limb. And I was speculating about that, why that may be the case. And I very much invoked cultural elements and I remember the reviewers slammed me for being for overgeneralizations. Mm. But I still I still think they they hold this kind of this generalized anti governmental yeah. mentality mm -hmm. in large swathes of the United States. And obviously you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there is more suspicion yeah. I think of, of of big government and there is a sense that the climate change science, because it has to be big science it does because a lot mm. of it needs a lot of equipment, a lot of funding, mm -hmm. that maybe it comes from the establishment and therefore mm. it's inherently there um, to be questioned. I think there's a large element of that. I think there's a kind of frontier mentality that maybe sees sees nature as something um, to be exploited and something to be tamed rather than as something to work with because the country is mm. so vast. There hasn't really been um, this need to uh, accommodate nature, to work with nature, as maybe there has been in Europe where we're all mm. crammed together yeah. in a small space. And we see that. We see that in Australia. I mean, Australia, I think, is the other country where you see real um, reflections of, of the US. And the US, the entire US economy was very much built on on, on explo exploiting fossil fuel mm. uh, resources, you know, starting with the wood and through to, um, you know, the oil, the oil rush yeah. and all that. And, and I guess with that, it's built up, you know, huge vested interests that, 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 that still rely on the kind of fossil fuel and exploitation mentality. It's kind of why should others tell us tell us what to do. And in a sense, they're right, because I do believe that strong action on climate change does require more government interventions. In a sense, I do mm. understand like slightly where this way the society are, are coming from. I, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, can, I can appreciate yeah. um, the, I can understand the anxiety. I, I, think, I think that's got a lot to do with it. And obviously being in the US, there is and again, these are sweeping generalisations, I do recognise this, but I think it is important to look at those cultural factors. Um, the US is isolated to a large extent from other countries. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that makes a difference. Yeah. Um, in, in, in Europe, I think we, we're generally culturally, geographically closer, perhaps, mm. to, 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 to Africa, to other countries that do stand to lose more um, from from climate change. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure to what extent you think these things hold up. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up in the, in the South. And yes. so... I'm familiar with that and, and grew up in that environment where, um, you know, people did talk about kind of ominously about the, you know, dangers of big government, the mm. dangers of government intervention. And people are, um, in general, I'm overgeneralizing too, but that's all right. This, you know, mm -hmm. we put an asterisk on this to exactly. acknowledge that we're overgeneralizing a little yes. bit. Um, and people, you know, would kind of pretty, they were pretty quick to share, you know, anecdotes about, oh, well, this this government policy, this law, mm -hmm. uh, here's the effect that it had on, you know, this group of farmers, here's the effect that it had on these people. So there was a real sensitivity to um, people and, you know, institutions being harmed by kind of large, you know, government heavy-handed mm -hmm. interventions. And folks would point to, you know, they'd point to communism, they'd point to yes. um, the Soviet Union, they'd point to North Korea, um, kind of making a bit of a dichotomy about it, right? And kind of saying like, well, you either have what we have right now in the U.S. or you have the, you know, uh, the, the uh, food insecurity and other problems that go along with North Korea. And of course, okay, it's more complicated than that, but that's yes. sort of how the world was presented. Yes. So it was like you either, you pick your, 
you know, it was presented as if you need to make your choice right now. You know, mm-hmm. you're either in this group or you're in that other group. So there, there, there's, it's presented as a kind of us versus them. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't like to speculate too much about, you know, why is the South like that or why mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. the U.S. like that in general? But yeah, there is. And like you said, plenty of other places have those same elements of us versus them and those kind of dichotom- dichotomies can pop up, right? So, That's right. You know. But for me, the irony always was that the U.S. has been so such a fundamental driver in terms of climate change science. Mm-hmm. Like, we really wouldn't know nearly as much of what we do now. We wouldn't have established climate change as a global problem if it yeah. wasn't for the science that originated in the U.S. That's right. So, and, yet, and yet the U.S. government, at various points in time, has explicitly not even believed or trusted its own scientists. But luckily, somehow the funding is still there, right? It's, to some it's, extent, you know, I think some it's, extent, you know, it is being cut under... Under, mm. under Trump, which is which is very worrisome. Yeah, that is. It is, and I just mean over the decades, you know, over, over the, the long decades. time scale. Despite, yes. this, like you said, despite the kind of uh, noise and position from you know various people in governments at, at different points in time. And um, the U.S. remains an ex- remains a positive force in both the IPCC and generally hmm. the climate change. Negotiations. Yeah. The U.S. does not seem to seek to block. It does not seek to obstruct, except for some minor wording issues. But it, as a general rule, it doesn't. It's, it's, it's not. It's not Saudi Arabia. I really. I remember you mentioning that at the uh, IPCC meeting when, when you mm. came here. That you mentioned that the U.S., uh, despite how it kind of looks on the top level, mm. they've actually been um, kind of helpful in the IPCC process, or at least not obstructive. Yeah. Yeah. So, but when you said Saudi Arabia had been more like actually ob- obstructive, like actually, yes. you know, trying to trying to block yeah the consensus on specific on the science part on, on, on the science, well, on the mm. well, on the summary for policymakers, obviously, it can't mm. it can't on the underlying report, yes. But I think the chairs were were very good in how they in how they handled that. I mean, Jim Ski and his colleagues were very adept as to ensuring that Saudi Arabia was heard and its concerns recorded, hmm. but ensuring that the scientific message was, was absolutely not, 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 not diluted yeah. or affected by this political interference. <clears throat> yeah, so that, were, you, uh, were you able to observe that? Like, uh, was that something you were able to be there for? Or no, 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 like... no, I don't. I don't travel so much nowadays. Now I've got, I've got kids I have hmm. to... I have to observe these things um, at home, but that's where technology is really useful. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's actually interesting, isn't it, how, how open all these climate change processes are. I mean, you know, anyone with a web link can just, just listen in on, mm. especially the, the climate change political negotiations, all the plenary meetings are all on webcast, and you can actually really observe and find out mm. what is happening. And that, that's quite different, so I guess, how things were 20 years ago. Yeah, and you can even make comments on the drafts as they're happening. I think you have to register as a... Yes, you would a, have to, you know, register, to register, but I think it's know. a pretty open pretty open process. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And that, that makes sense. And I know that... Um, so Mike Meredith here, he's one of the IPCC authors for one of the special reports. And yes. It has basically, you know, when, when he became the kind of lead author, like coordinating author of yes, that, CLA, it yeah. basically took his life over. And, and it does. He had to step down as the PI for one of the big programs and basically yes. just shift into that role. So his whole job, uh, not his whole job, but a huge part of his job is now, uh, for, for some period of time, you know, coordinating all those reviews, coordinating yes. the review comments, figuring out who's going to answer what. Because everything um, has to be answered and everything yeah. has to be logged. Yeah. And this is, you know, pursuant to some of the, well, not quite scandals, but concerns there were 
in the past with some other the IPCC reports and the mm-hmm. IPCC. Well, you, you know, you know this much better than I do. Has really tightened up its procedures mm-hmm. to ensure that everything can be traced and tracked yeah. and justified. And you know, and and, and that, that's a good thing. But it does mean a tremendous amount of work where even the most trivial silly comments do actually have to be responded to. Yeah. And how much was that's it? Right. Tens of thousands of comments for the IPCC yeah. special report. I mean, we're just now getting gearing up for the sixth assessment report, and mm. it's it, it's frightening to think what a huge, huge undertaking that is. And I guess for countries like the UK, that's fine because they can, you know, provide support and financial compensation mm. for their lead authors and their CLAs who, as you say, will have their life completely taken over yes. by this process in a couple of years. In fact, my husband is a, is a CLA on one of the Working Group 3 um, chapters, so I can see how that's already starting to, <laughs> to, to take yeah. over our lives, even at this, even at this um, early stage. And that's fine for the UK, it's fine for Germany, it's fine for the US probably fine for China, but you think, you know, some of the developing countries which are really trying to mm. incorporate and integrate more into the IPCC process, I mean, that they just don't have the resources to be able to, 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 to compensate and support their authors so much. I mean, I know there's a lot going on in the IPCC. I know this is an ongoing issue and a tremendous amount is done at the international level, but that can't, mm. that, 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 that can't make up for the, for the fundamental disparity in capacity. It's interesting um, what organisations that that's come out with a map of where all the lead authors and CLAs are are located throughout the world, and is it know. pretty Western? Pretty, well, it pretty, is, uh, but then you know, on the other hand, what 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 do you do? The IPCC isn't there to solve, hmm. you know, all the world's problems, and I, and I know they put a lot of effort into <laughs> it. But yes, one very big specific one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, but yes. not all of them. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. No, that <clears throat> sorry. So that. Uh, it, uh, maybe something concrete we can talk about. I just noticed your water bottle over there from COP. Was that from twenty three? From twenty three. So that was. Yeah, I lost my. Was... I lost my COP twenty one one. Sadly. Yes. Oh, okay, <laughs> it's uh, floating around the world somewhere now. Probably. Now. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully it's biodegraded or something. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the most recent one, the one in Poland. Katowice. Yes. Yeah. Would you mind giving me just um, a summary of that? Is that okay? Is it? Is it you comfortable with that? Or do you yeah, want, yeah, no, yeah. I'm just thinking okay? about about how to summarize it. Well, mm. I mean, it was. It was very much portrayed as a success, and I think certainly that's that that's what it was okay. um, on its own terms. So this was the big, just to set it up a little bit more. So this was the um, very much a political conversation. You know, it was between various leaders of world governments. Yes, right? and it was well, not between the leaders. Of... It was between the delegations right, okay. of the world's governments, and yeah. it was a follow up <laughs> to, um, to to Paris. Yeah. And obviously, there's one of these cops every single year, hmm. and this was the um, the, the twenty. 24th yes 24th sounds right and yeah and and the aim that the basic aim was to agree uh, the rule book for the paris agreements because right. the paris agreement it's, itself um set out the basic commitments and obligations yeah. but it left a whole load of um other issues to future negotiations which is absolutely fine yeah. and perfectly normal because the paris one the, the agreement was okay we're all going to try to stay under two degrees that's we're, right we're going to go for this uh, with an aspiration towards 1.5, right. so with two degrees really being, you know, that's, the upper the upper maximum guardrail. Yeah, that's two degrees warming above the pre-industrial condition. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which obviously is, I mean, it, it's an aspirational target. It's a collective mm. target. It has no, it has no real, real legal force. Mm. We won't really know when when we've necessarily reached it um, mm. before it's probably too late or anything about mm. it. Anyway, however, it does provide. Um, a good communication tool, I think, and and one can 
calculate down as to what it means in yep. terms of emission reductions for various entities. So I do think it's actually a helpful a helpful goal yeah, in that respect, right. even if scientifically and legally it is it is pretty pretty meaningless. But politically mm. and in terms of communication, it's, it's very important. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what it's all about, ultimately. You need a plan. You know, you've you, got a plan. You're not going to stick to it. No. You know that it's not going to happen exactly that way. But at least if you start with a plan, you have something to talk about, like something yeah. concrete to talk about. And, and, and two degrees is, is, is very easily understood hmm. by the public, general public. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So this most recent COP meeting, what does COP stand for? I forget. The con- a conference con- of the parties. Conference of the parties. Okay. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> which is the basically the supreme decision-making body of the convention, which is the parent treaty of the Paris Agreement. So it's basically mm. a conference of all the parties to the Climate Change Convention to and now Paris. also the Paris Agreement, yeah. Okay. Which sort of equate, there's about, I don't know, still 10, 15 countries that are parties to the convention but not to the Paris Agreement. So mm. if there ever was a vote or decisions to be taken on the Paris Agreement, they couldn't take part in that decision-making, but that's pretty much academic really. Okay. So technically it shouldn't be the COP. Technically it should be the COP. It should be the COP serving as the <clears throat> meeting of the parties to the Kyoto Protocol and the COP serving as the meeting of the parties to the Paris Agreement. Mm. But you know what? You would switch off after about <laughs> <laughs> my, my second word and it wouldn't fit on the water bottle. So that's why they just call it COP. It's a terrible acronym, whatever that was. <laughs> I didn't keep track of the letters. But yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of acronyms <laughs> yeah. in the climate change negotiations, <laughs> a lot of them. Okay, yeah. yeah. So you said the most recent one, there were some a little bit more specific uh, actual policies kind of broadly agreed on, whereas the Paris meeting was more about agreeing to a target. Yeah, so for example, um, the Katowice COP had to, um, what was, was charged with agreeing, this was the main thing really, the reporting rules for the Paris Agreement. And these are really very important because the only legally binding element of the Paris Agreement are really the reporting rules. So the nationally determined contributions, which are the country pledges, yeah, there is no legal obligation to actually meet those, Mm. but there is a legal obligation to report on what you are doing Mm. to try to meet them. So actually the contents of country reports really will be quite important. And there's... Uh, you know, there's a couple of elements here. Um, there's the greenhouse gas inventory side, so actually how countries report on their actual emissions. Mm-hmm. And that's reasonably straightforward because the IPCC produces guidelines that the countries then have to adopt and follow to the extent possible. That's one aspect of it. Then there's the more kind of fuzzy aspect, which is to report on policies. What policies are you implementing? Mm-hmm. And that can be a little bit more controversial because countries don't always want to put down in an international report what they're doing um, at home. And then there are other elements that are even more contested, uh, for example, what uh, the richer countries are doing to provide financial support to the poorer countries. Mm. So there was a big hoo-ha about the extent to which the donor countries should be required to say exactly the sums they were providing or intending to provide for the developing countries. That was quite an area of... Um, of debate and dispute because, of course, money mm-hmm. is always um, a very important topic and mm-hmm. has been since the very beginning. Uh, what Katowice did do was to agree a common set of reporting guidelines for everybody. So for all countries, both the developed and the developing countries. So everybody from Mali, you know, via Malaysia, China, Germany and the mm-hmm. US, they all have the same reporting guidelines which they never mm. did in the past. In the right. past, there was always two sets, one okay. for the Annex 1, the developed countries, and one for the non-Annex 1, mm. the developing countries. So and this has always been a really big thing. So now it's mm. one set of reporting mm. guidelines, um, but with nuances. 
So developing countries to the extent possible, as they can, dependent on financial support. Right. There's lots of nuances in mm. there, but ultimately there is one set, and that that is really quite a quite a big breakthrough. Yeah. So the if if you can report on it, you're expected to report on it, and exactly, yeah, so exactly. But you can decide. <clears throat> whether you're able to report on it or not. Mm. No one is going to stand over, over you and say, hang on a minute, you really should have reported on that. Right. I mean, they, 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 they may do, but all this is very non-confrontational mm. and unfacilitative. Yeah, but like Canada or the US would have a hard time getting yes. away with saying, oh, we yes. did, sorry, we're just not up to, <laughs> like, yeah, we're you not are. up to the job. You, you can exactly. do it. Yeah. And but bear in mind <laughs> that the Annex 1 parties, the developed countries, have been reporting on this stuff since 1995. Mm. Yeah, they have, you know, 20 years of reports behind them. Mm. Yeah. So the um, it reminds me that reminds me of uh, a couple of years ago. There was um, an oceanographer who she was mentioning that we need to have a system for uh, you know, measuring the carbon content of the ocean and the mm. distribution of the carbon content of the ocean as part of a a way we can see okay are, are you know the various parties is the world like kind of on track in terms of the carbon inventory in the ocean and atmosphere and we don't and have the, that. Um, it's it's there are now a, there's a set of biogeochemical floats in the ocean nice. that can measure uh, pH and other quantities yes. related to you know how much carbon is there, so it's it's coming along, but it's um, not as comprehensive spatially and temporally as one yes. might like. So, the it's called the biogeochemical, uh, it's called the. Uh, SOCOM is actually the acronym for the project. Southern Ocean, I'm going to forget what You've it is. You've got as many acronyms Carbon. as we have, oh, yeah, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> for sure, yeah. Acronym soup, yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's a Southern Ocean project to measure the carbon content, you know, in three dimensions. Well, four dimensions, really, right? Because you want to also, there's a time element to it as well. So that's relatively recent. But isn't that you interesting, know. you see, because I would have assumed <laughs> that we knew perfectly well mm. what the carbon content of oceans was seeing as we know what it is in the atmosphere moderately accurately i'd have thought that we would have known the oceans does it vary by ocean it can vary by ocean basin yeah and location and because there are some parts of the ocean that are better at taking up the carbon than others so temperature and other reasons yeah so i think in terms of the the bulk Mm. you know the total amount like we do have ways to do that but in terms of where is it actually going where is it distributed that's a little bit harder to pin down you need more measurements for that sort of thing yes um so I think that's the, <clears throat> but th- this idea that, yeah, we need a, a good way to keep track of the carbon. Yeah. I think folks in the, well, this is, that's now a platform you can use to write grant proposals and things on, right? You can justify it by yes. saying, yeah, we need these floats because we need to keep track of how's the world doing in terms of where is the carbon actually going? Well, totally. You know? yeah. Totally, yeah. yes. Um, that's really interesting, actually, because I've always said that one of the major achievements of the climate change regime so far is that we know what countries are emitting. Hmm. Yeah. And like 20, 30 years ago, we really we could only really hazard guesses. Hmm. And it was it was actually private companies like BP who were calculating this based on how much oil and how much coal and how much gas was being burnt. Hmm. Yeah. But we didn't know about other sources and things. And now we have much more comprehensive data throughout, especially the developed countries, but increasingly the developing countries about what actually is being emitted. Hmm. And if you don't know what you're emitting or where it's coming from. There's a limit to what you can actually do about it, and that really has to be your starting point. Yeah. Okay. So, no, I, I wasn't really aware of that. So, there's a layer of so the, the whole kind of cup process, or the, yes. you know, dealing with climate process, has created a layer of 
folks and institutions whose job it is to like continue to calculate carbon emissions from various sectors well it's the countries that do it yeah the individual but they report it through consistent methodologies now which they weren't doing Uh, before and then it all gets aggregated Mm. and 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 we have that we have that data but for a long time the developing countries were lagging very very far behind so i think it's a great achievement now Mm. that 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 they are being required to report and hopefully be given the financial support to do so right that must be why um, that that surely enabled. You know, late last year, there were, was a report that came out. Um, there were some authors at UEA um, yeah. and a few other places that yeah. uh, illustrate or that show they calculated that 2017 yes. was the peak year for emissions. Like in terms of it was uh, you know very very high in terms of emissions. Um, so I don't think they would have been able to do that work as quickly. You know, had they not had that framework of. No, this has yes, now been reported indeed. for a long time in a standardized way that is made public that people can download off of a <laughs> off of a website and you know the, and, and work with it. Well, that's you know. right, and then but there, but there's still obviously a lot of uncertainty because mm-hmm. I think um, those figures weren't necessarily in line with what people had hoped, and that was partly because China was revising mm-hmm. its figures because. Well, I mean, it's, there's so much going on in China, mm. <laughs> but but they they had made they had made mistakes. Or there were inaccuracies, or there were revisions okay. to its um, estimates of emissions from coal-fired power stations, mm. and that had led to a revision of the numbers. But that's interesting because there was a hiatus, there was a pause in the increase in global emissions, and I think there was a hope among many of us that that global emissions had peaked or were nearing mm. their peak. But now it all seems to have you know started off again yeah and those hopes have very much been dashed largely because i think of what is going on in china although there are still uncertainties there because there's a lag between estimates and what we can actually verify i think that's what the authors of that report concluded as well is that it was you know certainly not alone but china you know their their growth and the way they were growing contributed a lot to the to those emissions Uh, india as well and then you know if you keep going down the list the eu's on there and the U.S. is on the, on the list, oh, totally, but, you know, yes, yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah. So it's yeah. not like China standing alone in terms of its, um, you know, continued, you know, increase in emissions. No, but it's so, double, you know, double the emissions of the next country down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know that's been part of the discussion for a long time, and you you mentioned it. Um, the idea that, oh, well, the Western industrialized countries, you know, we all got to benefit from burning a lot of fossil fuels, which are have been relatively cheap and easily available. Yes. And so developing countries or countries that haven't gone through that same scale of industrial revolution can come along and say, well, we need a, we need to turn. Like yeah. you had your turn with this stuff. We need to turn with this, you know, to, to be able to do this. So um, you mentioned that in the most recent COP, the way that has kind of expressed itself is various developing countries kind of saying, well, we need to get some funding. We need to get some funding from the, you know, more developed mm, countries mm. that have been able to use fossil fuels mm. to, I, I guess, what's the intended idea of the, the funding that they're going to, that, that like is being directed towards um, the developing countries? Is the idea that it would be for them to use on energy infrastructure or is it put with, with relatively few conditions or? Uh, no, the developing countries, they, they have to apply um, to various funding sources with specific projects okay. in mind. Right. Yeah. It, 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 it doesn't come as a blank cheque uh, by any means, no. Um, I mean, and there, there's more there's more funding institutions that have been added to, to the regime. There was the Green Climate Fund hmm. um, that was agreed to in, in Copenhagen in 2009 and then came on board um, slightly further down the line. But there's always been all kinds of 
political wranglings over money. And to be honest, the amount of funding that developing countries will ever get through overseas development assistance is going to be minuscule compared with what they could be get well, what they are getting and, and, sh- and should be getting and, and will be getting hopefully through through private through private investment mm. flows. I mean, it, it's not. It's not overseas aid. It's not direct financial assistance that will that will save the world. That's mm. for sure. It'll be the kind of the flipping of the financial market, so that the actual general investment flows, which are huge yes. in the world economy, so these investment flows go predominantly and preferentially um, to to the greener the greener low carbon options. That's not to say that development aid doesn't have a role. Of course it does. And the fact that the World Bank now only funds new coal I don't think even does fund new coal but only under exceptional circumstances whereas mm. that wasn't the case you know just five ten years ago yeah the fact that it, it really won't fund a uh, new coal as I say apart from exceptional circumstances the fact that other development banks are coming on board um with with the low carbon agenda mm. really does make a difference sends very important signals I mean with, with China what what's interesting here is what China will do with its with its huge investment resources because there are there are concerns now. There are there is a spotlight being shone on China's investment in Africa, you know, mm. in, in in Asia, mm. this, this Belt and Road Initiative, and others, which is kind of slightly happening somewhat below the radar because China's very good at not really trumpeting um, what it's doing, mm. and a lot of that does seem to be going into higher carbon investments, into the more obvious coal. Um, gas and and, and 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 others in Africa and in Africa Canada. and in Asia, Pakistan, mm. uh, even Eastern Europe, even Eastern Europe in places like like, like Bosnia. Really, so they're investing the kind of in central, coal-fired. Huge, huge investments, huge investments, and whereas that they do seem to be pursuing a low carbon agenda as much as possible at home for a whole range of reasons, the extent to which that's being translated into a low carbon um, investment abroad mm. remains to be seen. And again, you know, big asterisks. I you know, I'm not going to back this up with, with specific figures mm, yeah. as I'm sitting here, yeah. so I don't have them in front of no, me. No, but, no, but, but this is what's coming out of literature, coming out of debates um, that I'm tapping into. So now when those um, African countries and Eastern European countries report on their emissions, mm. the, those carbon emissions associated with the coal-fired power plants are going to go in, in with those countries. Well, like yes, They'll be course. associated with those countries, yes, even yeah. though the funding and investment has come from China. Oh, yes. So in a way, they're yeah, sort yeah. of responsible for In a way, they kind of like they have provided, the, they have enabled it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I've yes, heard that argument. Right. I think it's a really interesting thing to think about because I've, I've heard, and you know, you will know more about this than I will, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, one criticism I've heard of uh, countries like Norway and you know, mm, Canada yes. is that they they are able to do, very, like you said, very low carbon things at home, kind yeah. of like China, but then they export a lot of oil and they export a lot of well, that's right. things so that, and, and that's that's then still something that they have contributed to, but it's off of their balance sheet. It's off of their books. No, I think Norway no. has been a little bit naughty in that respect. I mean, Norway is seen as being the, you know, the green champion, although I think I did read and hear that their their sovereign fund and investments are uh, moving out of higher carbon yeah. options. Mm-hmm. They are starting to do abroad what they have been doing at home. But certainly, of, of course, of course, that that's a, <laughs> that that's an issue, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? And it's partly yeah. the way in which we we count we count emissions because the, the really high profile um, facet of that debate is the exporting of manufacturing to developing countries. Mm. So 
if I, if I tell people, look, it's great, the UK is now emitting less than it was in 1990, anybody who's vaguely informed will say, oh, yes, well, that's because all the manufacturing has gone to, to, to China, hmm. yeah, and then the emissions in China to make the rubbish that then we import, they're hmm. counted against Chinese, the Chinese inventory, yeah. not against the UK inventory, which apparently is true to some extent, but not, not actually entirely. Our, our what's called consumption emissions have actually gone down as well since about since about 2005 but there is an element of that yes mm. and, and and now uh, with china moving to a more service and high-tech economy there is the sense that you're going to have another shift mm. of their consumption emissions to cheaper countries again to, to, to vietnam to indonesia to, to around the planet you know. and, until we have a whole scale conversion low carbon transition towards um towards renewable yeah. energy which which is starting to happen and i think it's important to not be too too pessimistic and not fall into a mm. council of despair because mm-hmm. as i say in most developed countries emissions are falling or stalling with with exceptions you know mm. australia being for example one of those exceptions i mean even the u.s emissions are lower than they were in 2005 yeah yeah and people don't really believe me when i say that but actually <laughs> if you look at the figures it, it, you know it really really is it, it, it's true and the you know the uk decarbonization story of the electricity sector is is is, is a has been a great a great success i mean it may yeah. have been due to mrs thatcher and coal mines and things mm-hmm. but yeah, the UK does pretty good in terms of uh, introducing low-carbon energy sources. I mean, mm. I say that mm. as a non-expert who just, yeah. I've seen some of the percentages of, yes. oh, here's how much energy, the percentage of energy we're generating by, you know, wind and um, solar. Yes. It's pretty, yes. pretty good compared to a lot of other, other I mean, places. In the UK, you know? lots of North, you know, Northwestern European countries. Yeah. So that, you know, that it is, we are, we are moving forwards, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt about about that at all. I wanted to talk about the investment thing a little bit more, if you don't mind, because I think that's <clears throat> that's so interesting. You know, the idea that I remember there's a phrase in the COP report, which uh, I, I glanced over some bits of it, a, you know, a couple months ago, that um, the idea was to harmonize some financial flows. But well, that's actually in the Paris Agreement. That's, that's part, that's part one of the, the Paris, Paris Agreement, Agreement goals. Mm. I mean, you know, you, you have you have the temperature goals, you have the goal for adaptation, mm. and then you also have to make financial flows consistent with the goals of the Paris Agreement. And, mm. and very often that that third that that third mm. subparagraph is completely forgotten. But in a mm. way, it's actually the most mm. the most important because you you harmonise your investment flows with a low carbon goal and. Hey presto, you've almost solved your, your problem. Maybe not on the time scale that you were hoping yeah. for, but but that that's what we're looking towards. That's right, and you didn't even necessarily need to completely redo your economic system in the process. No. You know, yeah, you no. you shift where the investments are happening, and exactly. that has huge huge effects. And you just go down a, a different trajectory with mm. no real cost as such. Yeah. So yeah, I, I guess for a while, one argument that I remember hearing is that oh well, carbon you know, sources like coal and oil, they'll just get to be prohibitively expensive and people will want to invest in, you know, low, low carbon stuff. Yes. Um, and I, I guess that uh, being a total non-expert, it seems like some of that is happening. Some of that, you but know? also but, because the low carbon stuff, as you put it, the wind and the solar has been getting cheaper. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, why is yeah. that? I mean, fundamentally, that is that is due in large part to huge amounts of investment. Right. Yeah. yeah. In, in, in China and Germany being big drivers mm. in, in this respect you needed you needed the the government investment in the innovation to start to start off with to, to get these technologies yeah. you know off the drawing board and you know and, and into the marketplace but now i mean the decline in the cost of solar has been absolutely precipitous it really is quite impressive mm. and 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 wind yeah. in certain areas and my more techie colleagues would talk about um, market auctions and things like that whereby you know offshore wind mm. has become 
actually totally competitive with gas and other options yeah. um, in, in, in Europe, and then solar power also becoming competitive in, in the more sunny parts of the world. Hmm. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, and, and, I mean, and coal has, has huge problems. And coal isn't really economically attractive anymore in the US mm. to a large extent. Yeah. And that's yeah. why, even though Donald Trump would like to revive coal, I think there's no sign that that is actually going to really happen no. because it's just not economically attractive. Yeah. But, you know, in other yeah. parts of the world, it is still the easiest option because you haven't quite had that government investment. Right, yeah. In, in Vietnam, you know, Pakistan, places like that. And then and then you have countries like Australia that are still exporting the stuff. It really right. is quite quite extraordinary. Yeah. So the, guess, That's why you need an element, I guess. What I'm trying to explain is that you need, you, you need government to provide that investment, yeah. to provide the framework that helps these technologies to get off the ground to start off with. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can't you can't really get away from it. It, it seems right. I mean, mm. uh, the idea that well, if we just wait for you know coal yeah. and things to get cheap enough for us for us as a whole you know planet <laughs> to, to decide yeah, to yeah. switch over to the low carbon stuff. Mm. The worry is that we will have, have already gone really far down a road that we probably don't want to go down in terms of yeah. CO two concentrations in the atmosphere, exactly. and extra energy into the climate system. So. Um, uh, it's it's hard to think of well, what else could we do other than introduce some, you know, signal from various world governments to, yes. to you know to kind of push the markets in a particular way exactly um, to encourage more investment into those low carbon technologies. Mm. Getting back to the start of our conversation, though, we totally it's like you said we can totally understand folks who might feel anxious about that. Folks who might feel like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah, you but don't, don't forget <laughs> the fossil fuels themselves. Mm enjoy a lot of government support yeah they you do. know it, it's not subsidized. true to suggest that this wonderfully <laughs> liberalized market-driven yeah, yeah. um energy sector and suddenly government is coming in yeah, and starting yeah. to subsidize renewables That's that right. is not true That's at right. all i mean the the, the the figures for subsidies to to, to oil and, and and coal and gas are really quite yeah. quite extraordinary depends how you measure subsidies i mean a lot of it is hidden subsidies mm. but it really if all those subsidies were just removed hmm. that would provide a much more uh, level playing field plus you're not taking into account um, the, the the health impacts of fossil fuels yeah. would be the health impacts of of coal burning in China. That is a large reason why China is moving away from coal yeah. simply because the citizens are dying because of because of you know lung problems. Yeah. <laughs> it's radioactive. The, well, the stuff maybe that come... I didn't know that. There oh, you go. Yeah. It's also radioactive. I'll yeah. add that to the list of, um, yeah, <laughs> of local air pollution. So so as I say, that 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 is true. But you, you but, but but there is government intervention in, in all markets. So mm. it, it's it's a bit disingenuous to start complaining about mm-hmm. the interventions in renewable energy. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that um, you could do a lot of, of uh, change just by removing those subsidies that the gov- governments are that. already really deeply into the process. Yeah, yeah but yeah. unfortunately, in, in a lot of countries, those subsidies are actually you know supporting whole communities. I mean, this is the mm. thing about about coal is that in as I say, in a lot of countries, they're the regions that are entirely dependent on. On, on, on coal plants yeah, it's, it's yeah. coal mining or coal-fired power plants it's very very interesting you know i mean i'm the editor of, of a journal called climate policy mm-hmm. and, I, and i and i read these papers with great interest we had one about about colombia again you know great great swathes of the country really reliant on coal and, and if you're going to transition to low carbon options you have to plan that transition very very carefully because you can't just leave these regions high and dry and that's why germany still producing a frightening percentage of its electricity from from coal i mean germany for goodness sake yeah and that's because it's it, it, it's difficult to effect that transition that's why we were talking about katowice about the location of cop 24 
in Poland mm-hmm. and especially around Katowice, uh, which is a heavy industrial uh, region. And I think that was actually quite an eye-opener, I think, for many, um, for many climate change uh, converts going there and realizing, well, yeah, but actually there's a lot of low-income yep. households here that are totally dependent on, on this industry. And you can't just say, well, I'm sorry, we're going to shut your coal mine and we're going to no. install um, a wind farm because the wind farm will you will employ maybe a very small percentage mm. of these coal miners because these renewable energies, that they're not labour intensive. That's what people forget mm. as well. It's all very well to talk about green jobs, but but there are many more jobs in the coal mine than there are in a in a wind in a wind farm. I, I, I can I can tell you that. And okay. therefore, the transition does have to be managed, and it does cost money. I mean, I do mm. think Germany could have maybe done more to do it a little bit more quickly. That's for sure. Yeah. But but we we can't just ignore that, yeah, because then we won't we won't bring the populations and people along with us. So how do you do that? What do you do? You offer to retrain people, and do you offer to? Yes, you, know, yes. you can do that. And um, for some reason, the the phrases that popped into my head was like, you know, you want to offer those folks a transition pathway you know, mm-hmm. out of that kind of industry, and you want you want them to be able to preserve their dignity and integrity exactly. in terms of that. Cause they've been working hard their whole lives. They've been, you know, yes. you know, d- working in this, this mine and it's absolutely not their fault that there's an entire, you know, carbon rich yeah. energy system infrastructure that needs to change. So it's kind of up to, you know, the rest of us to like offer them a pathway. And I'm not, when I say the rest of us, I just mean collectively, not completely, not, not like me and you, obviously just like, you know, well, we to, are part of it through our taxes and all the rest of it. That's yeah, true. Yeah. And this is a whole new narrative that has come through in the climate change negotiations, that of the just transition, the just transition. Mm, And this came out of um, lobbying and, um, you know, inputting into the process by uh, US trade unions, but it really has been taken on board. And I think there is a much greater acceptance and I think sympathy for those communities now, whereas I think before maybe the environmental NGOs were a little bit strident and kind of dismissing Mm. maybe some of these concerns. And now it's being realised that actually, no, you know, there are real social issues here. Um, that needs that, that need to, to be to be heard, and it and it does involve a big transition. The other thing I would say is that the low carbon transition is part and parcel of a much wider economic transition mm. that involves artificial intelligence, yeah. that involves the introduction of technology, <laughs> oh um, that involves. I mean, it, it's something that we're all faced with, aren't we? Of, of job lo- of, of of huge uh, job losses yeah. and the need to, co- to to convert workforces um, away from heavy manual jobs to 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 higher yeah. higher tech jobs, or maybe working less, maybe working fewer mm. hours. I mean, it's it's not just low carbon. Yeah. It, it really taps into um, a whole a whole chain globalization, a whole change in in, in the world economy. Yeah. In, in in a whole range of other ways. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty scared as an outsider for yeah. the whole transportation and for the folks who work in the yes. transportation industry. Yes, like, transportation, manufacturing, uh, distribution, retail. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's all undergoing. Um, yes. A, you know, a, a massive, massive transition, and low carbon is only a small part of yeah. that. And if that change is happening as quickly as some folks mm. say it is, then we are not doing nearly enough to figure out mm. the alternative system we need to put in place. You know, and the fact that, know. as I say, the, the low carbon side, but also the AI side and all the other sides, they all involve less labor. Yeah. And, I, and I read an article that was talking about electric cars and it hadn't really dawned on me. 
um, that electric cars themselves require less labour. They require less labour to manufacture because they are so much simpler hmm. and they require less labour to, to, to maintain because oh, really? there's fewer moving parts. So oh. in principle, they should break down less often. Hmm. Uh, the whole um, MOT, which is the, the, the UK uh, test on cars to ensure they're roadworthy, all that uh, will take will take less time and, and fewer people. There will be more computer driven. Hmm. So even... So in a sense, even if you maintain um, a large um, personal transportation car fleet, the number of engineers and people that you need to service that will be less. Wow. That made me think. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And I was, I, was, um, I was in Norfolk and I saw a little exhibition about the Sheringham Shoal um, offshore wind farm. And I was very interested to see that it did employ, you know, thousands of people during the construction. Mm. But now for the maintenance phase, my goodness, the the, um, the, the, the supervising area on shore, it employs, what, 12 people? I mean, really? maybe that's wrong, but certainly not in the hundreds. So from thousands, certainly not in the hundreds. Thousands to tens. So to, to tens. And, you think, and then that is displacing, to some extent, probably gas-fired generation, which would require more people. And that, that really did make me think a little bit more about this whole concept of green jobs being an economic opportunity. Mm. Yes, but hang on a minute. You know, we can't necessarily take that at face value, and we do need to take concerns of the job losses quite seriously. Yeah, I agree with you. And I've probably in the past been been guilty of being mm. a little bit too optimistic about, mm. like, oh, yeah, you know, the, the, there will be a whole new economy, a whole new green economy that... Um, and because my, my, uh, one of my old professors was fond of saying like, well, think of how much wealth we generated during the creating this energy infrastructure that we have right now. And he was kind of saying, well, we can do that again by remaking the energy infrastructure. And that, that might be true, but I guess then there's a question of, okay, well, how is that wealth going to end up in different places? You know, how is it, how is it going to get, end up distributing, you know, to the, how big of a share of the folks who, you know, are actually constructing these things and maintaining these things going to get and um where and the, yeah and on the other hand on the other hand it can be more democratic and can be more community mm. driven because renewable energy almost inherently is, is smaller scale mm-hmm. so you can imagine communities having much greater control um over their yeah. over their energy sources so so that there are positive aspects to it certainly as well and all these things are much cleaner um you've got less um less air pollution local health issues yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's good to talk to a, a policy person who has a, a better handle than I do on on some of those potential negatives and some mm. of those potential mm. downsides. Yeah, mm. because if we ignore the downsides, uh, that's when we, you know, that's when we get people like Trump elected and, and Brexit agreed. I mean, I'm sorry to bring it back up to huge no, no. to huge issues, but you can't actually ignore and brush aside yeah. legitimate concerns. I mean, I think that. When, a, minute, a minute ago, when you mentioned, um, you know, various NGOs being too aggressive, right? That maybe a bit, bit too dismissive, dismissive or blase. Yes, yes. yes. I mean, you can picture that feedback loop in, mm. in your head, can't you? You can mm. imagine. Okay, well, here's a community that relies on a coal-fired power plant you know, mm. for their jobs, and then you have, you know, uh, NGOs, you know, various negotiators kind of just saying, well, they'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. And you can totally understand why the folks you know, living in that village would be like, well, what do you mean? We'll be fine. How yes. can you, you can't guarantee that. You don't know that. You want to change yes. everything about the way that we live and the way that we have been living. And you're not going to offer me any security. And you can totally understand why these folks might not feel uh, engaged. That's right. <laughs> but that, they might not buy into the whole <laughs> green agenda. Yeah. Yes. They might be like, yeah. all right, you can, you can tell me the science. That's fine. But at the end of the day, I need a job and a livelihood and yes. we need a community. So until you can offer me that, you know, get lost and like, you totally can understand you can. You know, where that, where that can come from. You can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So yeah, in terms of the, the, the potential shift with AI and everything to a new system, what do you think about things like universal basic income? Is that part of the solution? What, what do we need to do to you know respond to? Do we just say, okay, well, no, uh, uh, now less labor is needed to maintain a society, yeah. um, but that doesn't diminish your fundamental value as That's a human right. person in this society. So, you know, here here is your floor. Here is your basic, you know, you know level of. You're going to have basic health care. You're yes. going to have a basic level of income to where you won't be homeless. You know, anything above a certain threshold, you can imagine, you can say, okay, well, yeah. if, if you want anything above that basic level, you need to, you'll need to go out and work for it. But we at least will not let you fall below, you know, the cracks and we won't let you fall below. Is which, that, which admittedly you know, is what social security and the welfare state is actually supposed to do, isn't it? Yeah, but in yeah. practice it doesn't. No, mm. I, I love the idea and I, and I love the way the whole climate change debate <clears throat> taps into these really big questions about, you know, the affluent society and, you know, post-capitalism and post-materialism yeah. and um, this trend um, towards, to some extent, simpler lifestyles and questioning a consumerism and does it make us happy, does it not make us happy? Um, the kind of redefinition of what a good life mm. means. Mm. And, and they're all really, really big questions, which to some extent environmentalism has has maybe triggered, but but not entirely. You know, when you have the boss of Ikea who's talking about you know, peak stuff and all this new trend towards decluttering. I mean, it all taps into this kind of mm-hmm. slight social malaise that may be um, a life that's, that's, that's based on trying to work as hard as possible to make as much money in order to accumulate mm-hmm. um, goods isn't really uh, the way that we should be yeah. going. You know, and I, I love the idea of a universal, of a universal income. I'm not sure, I, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't solve um, all society's ills, but no, I think no. that this sense that... <clears throat> The, the sense that we should be just doing less, doing less and enjoying more mm. and spending, obviously, I mean, this is, this is, this is all comes with huge asterisks, but, you know, know, spending know. more time yeah. with our family, you know, enjoying walks in nature rather than, um, you know, working harder to buy more stuff. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is certainly all aspirational stuff <laughs> and, and is where we should be going. And there's, and there's people doing some really good work on sustainable lifestyles, yeah. on sustainable consumption. And ultimately, that is what needs to happen for climate change as well. Yeah, we, we, we do all need to, to consume less, but at the mm-hmm. moment that's totally at odds with our economic system where consuming less means that shops close, people, use their, people lose their jobs, yeah. you know, our, our GDP growth goes down. Um, I mean, it, it's, a real, it's a real conundrum, and that is, in a sense, the real, the real conflict, the real discrepancy the kind of cognitive dissonance between an economic system that wants us to consume more to make more to work more to travel more to do more yeah Mm -hmm. and an environmental agenda that wants us to do all those things less and maybe even a social agenda that would that would is crying out for us to do to do less yeah yeah um i had a thought a second ago where um, oh, one of the asterisks uh, that maybe you had in mind. I want to. I want to put this to you. Was um, I guess that was how computers in general yeah, the proliferation of cheating. That was how it was sold. You know, yes, a couple yes. decades ago. Like, look, we're not going to have to work as hard. Yes. But what actually happened, you know, is that we're expected to work more. We're expected to be available. You know, more of the time. That um, it, it has um, just 
it hasn't lessened our work burden. It probably mm. worsened it. It probably, you know, increased the level of or, of expectations of you know how much stuff are you expected to produce and and do. So I guess uh, the yeah. I mean, I think about that a lot, and I think the sociologists and economists would probably have a lot a lot to say about mm. that. And you kind of wonder whether it isn't in our in our human nature to to push ourselves and to strive for more and to accumulate more if we can. Mm. I, I wonder to what extent a kind of slowed down society is compatible with human nature. Hmm. And, I, and I do ask, ask myself that. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, it, it's, you could imagine, uh, I'm, I'm being a little bit silly, but you'll see where I'm going with this. You know, imagine a kind of silly future where we all just sit around and make paintings for each other and music mm-hmm. and there's no, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I think, like you said, we're not going to stop wanting to do stuff. We're going to, but I guess the question is, yeah. where do we channel that ambition? Where do we channel that sense of like, no, I want to make something and do something. And, um, well, but for some folks, they will just, they, they will want stuff, won't they? They will want, and it, it makes sense, you know, if you, especially if you have a family, you can imagine, oh yeah, I want my family to be okay and I want them to yes. be secure and, and prosperous and I, I want them to be fine. You know, if I happen to randomly pass away or whatever, then, so all of those anxieties and ambitions drive us to like get more stuff and, and to hoard a little bit and to try to make a, a nest, a safe nest. So, and of course we're talking from a, a lovely, comfortable Western middle-class yeah, yeah. uh, position. Totally. Um, and in a sense, obviously the, 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 the real problem actually from a climate change perspective is more um, that the, the parts of the world where people have not reached that level mm. of starting to worry about, yeah, <laughs> about yeah. doing too much and having too much in their worry. That's it's actually true. about meeting the basic or middle-class needs. Yeah. And that's where the emissions yeah. growth will come from. And that's actually what needs to be managed. Yeah. Unless it can be kind of low, put down in a low carbon way right and, from the get go. And is that's where you're talking you know. about technology having a huge role to play. And also one thing we haven't mentioned is, is, is population growth. That's always been mm. one of my slight uh, bugbears is that ultimately there are just too many people mm. in the world, really. And that's not a very fashionable thing to say. <laughs> um, but I think that has a lot to do with it because obviously we, we do want, you know, it's, it's for, for fundamental ethical reasons, you do want every single citizen on this planet to, to enjoy to enjoy the, the, the basic middle-class benefits that we do mm. as well. But unfortunately, that is actually a very difficult thing to deliver within the environmental constraints of the planet. Yeah, because the, there's this idea of carrying capacity or yeah. the maximum number of people that the planet can naturally sustain. You know, what, and yes. what, what is that number? And like you said, technology can help a great deal in terms of reducing an individual person's, like how much they need from yeah. nature. Um, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. But yeah. then you do need to have a somewhat more of a different of a different lifestyle, and one aspect of that that's really coming to the fore, isn't it? Is is diet? diet yeah, I was about to ask that. Yeah, yeah. there's this idea of the climate diet that, that mm, this was in mm. the news a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and how? Oh yes, that's right. I, do, I, I know what you're talking about. Yes, yeah. Um, but about how if all you know the entire world population starts to start, starts to consume you know meat based diets. Then, then really that is yeah. a very difficult thing to be able to sustain yes. from an emissions, from greenhouse gas emissions um, point of view. And, and you, do see, you do see China, you do see other developing countries very much moving towards an aspirational um, Western diet. Hmm. And, 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 and that's where it's difficult to say, hey, no, you, know, you can't do that. 
because actually, you know, we have, and, and, and I guess in, in our country, in Europe, we are starting to question our meat-based diets. Yep. And, and we do see a trend towards much more vegetarianism, you know, to the extent of, of veganism. So in a sense, we've got, we've got over that hump. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's where, where dietary um, trends are going to go in the developing countries, which is, which is interesting. Hmm. You know, I, I was in India um, over Christmas and I, I took a photo of it. There was a there was a big poster about a big conference about about diet a diet in India and you know maintaining a sustainable diet in India, which I thought was very very interesting mm. because it's quite well known that, that an Indian vegetarian diet is is, is the most sustainable one. So the fact they felt they had to have a conference to discuss this suggests that mm. maybe dietary shifts are going uh, more towards the the meat eating. Oh right, element. okay, mm. yeah. That lab grown meat might be a thing before. Yes, <laughs> and insects apparently yeah. my. My son was at Scouts on Wednesday and they were all given insects to try. They were told that this was the way of saving uh, the world from climate change, was eating insects. Um, (laughs) Okay. Yeah, well, I haven't tried that myself. I don't know. No, no. I mean, this is the thing. I I guess there are solutions out there. There are lots of different pressure points to do with climate change, lots of different leverage points that one can activate that you could see would lead us towards hmm. towards the t- towards close to the two degree targets you know the solutions out there we, we, we kind of know what we have to do um, hmm. the point is to try and to, to exert more effort to actually do them and that's what I find frustrating is that ever since I started working on this issue the actual solutions haven't really changed that much oh, right. I mean there's a yeah. much more emphasis now hmm. on on diet which maybe there certainly wasn't in the 1990s and, and early 2000s uh, but the fundamental solutions have been known have been known for decades really hmm just a matter of how do you actually get something like that to happen yeah exactly yeah, yeah. exactly i've um i know i keep going back to the investment thing but there was well, one question i wanted to ask if you, if you don't mind i keep going back this isn't like a um you know if if you don't want to enter into this topic that's totally fine but i wanted to get a sense of um well you haven't been, you haven't been scared to talk about anything else so i don't know why you <laughs> would be nervous about this um there's been this wave of uh, divestment campaigns ah, at universities, yes. yeah. you know, in lots of different places in the U.S. and, and Europe. Uh, that's the ones I'm aware of, anyway. That, that there's been pressure, tremendous pressure, put onto uh, universities to, mm. especially ones with with big endowments, you know, mm. big pots of money that uh, they just grow somewhere. I guess they just yeah. keep keeping, you know, they just well, they're invested in, much, in, in in fossil and, fuels and yeah, other places. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So there's been a big pressure for those in, uh, institutes to you know, divest from fossil mm. fuels and to put their investments elsewhere. Um, <clears throat> and on the one hand, it sounds like a really, it sounds like a really positive thing. And the one possible counter argument i've heard that's kind of interesting is like oh well if you do that then you're no you no longer have a seat at the table yeah. you no longer can yeah. put pressure on exxon or whatever company to um you know to to start moving in a sustainable direction whatever that might well, mean there is no for sustainable a, direction no, right. i'm afraid yeah, unless they the totally change to you know yeah. a renewable energy kind of structure um so i thought that 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 i don't want to call it a dichotomy but you know that contrast is interesting between you know oh well what path do you take there? Do you stay at the table so you can have a say on what they do? Or do you just say, we're not supporting this at all and we're going to pull all our, all our money out? I know that this has been a big controversy at the in university Cambridge. in terms of the yeah. you know, divestment yeah. and whatnot. Do you want to say a little bit about 
about that picture, the divestment picture in general? And... Well, I mean, I, I can see the argument for staying at the table. Then the argument goes one step further and says that if the responsible investors divest, then it'll be possibly more irresponsible investors that will come to the table, mm, and right. therefore the pressure will be will be totally off. I mean, I can see that, but to me, that is actually the easy the easy option, mm. and I, I really don't see how investor pressure has made a huge amount of difference, except in terms of maybe disclosing carbon assets and things like that. But there's plenty of pressure being put on these companies from other sources, not just not just shareholders. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I've become a bit more radical in my old age and I would say divest, just divest. Hmm. I mean, imagine if Cambridge University said, right, we are divesting entirely from fossil fuels. That would make such a huge splash, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't it? And that would be such a strong signal because the University of Cambridge is, is such a big name all around the world, mm-hmm. yeah, including in places like China, which just does not have any divestment movement at all. Mm. I would add these are mm. all these divestment movements. They're all in, you know, highly democratic Western OECD right. countries. Well, of course they are. <laughs> you know, no one's no one's running a divestment campaign in, in, in Saudi Arabia. You know, are they? That, I mean, that is a slight problem with a divestment campaign. Yeah. It's very much um, a Western thing. But I would be all all out for divestment. I think j- j- just that signal and that leadership would be abs- it is absolutely critical. Mm. Mm. Would make a much bigger impact um, than having that seat at the table and staying at the table completely and and it's also the pension funds it's you know uss and 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 these places these places these huge endowments they they, they do invest in if people really knew what they invested in i think there would be huge outcries i mean i was Mm. i was really shocked when i learned the uss invests in british american tobacco and that shocked me even more actually (laughs) than the fossil fuel side of things so yeah so some of the some pension money comes from Tobacco comes from the. But it's one of their top five. One of the, mm. but it certainly was last time I looked. One of their top five, um, you know, places where they where they invest is British American oh, tobacco. Wow. So there, there, there is a lot going on there. And I think, yeah, if you want to redirect investment flows, then by definition you have to remove them, mm. you know, from from, from the from the fossil fuels. Yeah. You, you can't just start putting them towards renewables. You've got to remove them as well. And I think that is absolutely yeah. what the big investors should be doing. And, and there are alternatives out there. There really are. I think there's just a lot of inertia and a lot of fear. Because obviously the other argument is that these are quite stable, um, mm. good yielding investments. And that the, um, the, the endowment fund managers have a fiduciary duty towards the shareholders and towards and you know for pension providers towards the pension holders to invest in the best possible mm-hmm. places but i think that is a slight cop out as well because with all the possible investment opportunities in the world that are out there i'm sure it's not beyond mm-hmm. you know the wit of man or woman to find some <coughs> high yielding and uh, low carbon options and, and they, they are out there yeah. they are out there yeah mm-hmm. and all you need is, 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 is to start that ball rolling so what can we do as a, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making no assumptions about you. I'm not an investor. I have no way to like, you know, no, not, but not for example, way, but... I mean, I, I have a, a minute pension, um, with USS, which I really should divest out of, but my, my, my main pension provider is with, um, one of the government providers and they do have an ethical green mm. option. And you know, you just, you just choose, so you can make those, you can just choose that um, one. You can actually make, you can actually make that the choice is yourself or you can at least question mm-hmm. even if you feel you're not in a position to actually move to a green to a green provider if, if you're if you're concerned about that or you're worried about your future at least ask at least ask the question of aviva of the, of the big the big companies you know what what are you investing in yeah. and I, I think one of the one of the pressure points that one can focus on is coal 
because I think it's a little bit more difficult with oil and gas because they will inevitably be part of the energy mix for mm. some time to come. I think I think coal is one where you can say, are you still investing in coal? Right. And if so, why? And I think this is one where USS, I don't think they invest in coal mm. anymore, largely for commercial reasons. Um, I know my 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 son's school they were investing in something and I, I did in china and i did say well you know do, do, do these companies have mining interests i know they came back to me no no they don't have mining interests mm. you know don't worry about that and i think just asking those questions sparks sparks interest and concerns hmm. in fund managers minds because they're always i mean their job is to spot trends yeah, yeah. and if they can spot mm. an ongoing trend um a wave towards low carbon that's what they're going to be that's what they're going to be focused on hmm. Yeah, so yeah, we, need, we need to question, ask and, and transparency. Absolutely. And there's a mm. load of, of great organisations doing a lot of work on transparency. You know, the Carbon Disclosure Project and, and, and others. We know a lot more now uh, than we used to. And I guess to help that mo- help get that momentum going, I mean, I, I guess one of the best things we can do is just talk about it and just mm. make noise about it and to, yes. you know, to keep that in the conversation. And yes. To, yeah, yeah. yes. I mean, I, th- again, this is interesting with, 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 with meat. Um, you know, my husband was a bit concerned that, that he that he eaten chicken at, at, at a restaurant. And I said, well, you know, if, that, if that's what you wanted to eat, then fine. But then ask them, ask them, hey, you know, is this, is this, is this free range chicken or is it organic chicken? Mm. And then, you know, the waiter will go to the kitchens and ask. Then maybe they'll ask the manager. Then maybe the manager will come out and then maybe you can start a conversation. Mm. And if, if 10, 15 people do that, you know, then maybe they'll start asking their suppliers, hey, would you have an organic option that wouldn't be mm. prohibitively more expensive? And maybe there is one. Yeah. You know, there's mm. a lot of inertia right there and it just needs to move, move that inertia forward. And at least in the democratic, in, in, in the Western countries as consumers, we do actually have a lot more clout uh, that, than we think we do. Yeah. So keeping that conversation going is important. And then the other aspect mm. of that is getting as many people into that conversation as possible. Kind yes. of casting a really wide yes. uh, umbrella. Because we don't want this conversation to just get split down, you know, value lines of, yeah. let's say, more traditional yeah. versus more, I don't know, liberal, you know, kind of value That's sets. True. You know, we don't want it to be split in that way. Mm-hmm. This, this, we, we need everybody to, you know, have some part of this conversation. That's right. And so I think the, the the part where we were, you know, where you try to be genuinely sensitive and empathetic to mm. folks who really are in a different position that's important right and, and not they, create a backlash as well yes yeah and not, you know, not not start to not start to preach i think preaching has has, has never worked on no. on any issue it's, it's nudging isn't it it's, it's that um that new policy mm. a buzzword is, is to nudge people to make the right decisions yeah and that's where you know to some extent regulation and banning can work in some ways you know i, I like to think about the whole plastic bag thing how in just a couple of years we seem to have virtually entirely phased out the single-use plastic bag just yeah. with, you know, a small 5p um, cost. I think it might now have gone up to 10p, but hmm. it's really something that anybody can, can can afford. And somehow we seem to have, you know, hmm. as a society, as a nation, really bought, bought into it. Hmm. So now it's seen as almost, you know, socially unacceptable to ask for. Um, a bag at a mm. supermarket, and well, I find that interesting. I don't think you can at my at my Morrison's. You can't like even no. get one of the disposable ones. Like you you have to <clears throat> if you forget yours, you have to buy another one. They have the kind of cheap ones available. You know, thirty five p ones available. I yes. think you know that you can that you can get. But um, <clears throat> I'd I'd like to see that for uh, disposable coffee cups. That's another mm. one of my 
real bugbears. <laughs> yeah, because I think, you, know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the coffee cups, um, they're not really as recyclable no, as we no. like to think. I mean, they say they are. They, they say have, they are. They have like a coating on the inside, well, don't they? Of course they, they do. I mean, they can't be they... paper, can they? Otherwise it all disintegrate. Yeah. Once you put the coffee in them. That's right. And that coating makes them difficult to, to recycle. Yes, because you'd so, have to you separate the, the two out. So in principle, you can take them back to Costa Coffee or wherever, and they will take yep. them back. But in practice, people aren't really going to do that. Yeah. So the, I guess the... The value, the conversation about including as many people under yeah, the umbrella yeah. makes me think about the the approach that I have heard about that um, is to first kind of do it on a small scale, like have mm-hmm. have the conversations on a small community scale, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. start with try to identify what people value, like locally, like okay, what do the people here you know care yeah. about? Yeah. What do you what do you want to protect? What do you want to see happen? And then to find a way to have climate in that discussion of like, okay, well, here's how we think climate change is going to affect these things that you value. Uh, And then that hopefully opens up a conversation about what sorts of solutions do you want to see? What solutions would be consistent with your sense of how, how you want to approach the world? Um, and it, it's hard because it's complex and people don't necessarily have a ton of time to sit around and dig into the complexities, but it's so, it's so important. It feels like maybe we should be doing more to enable difficult conversations. Yes. There's, there's an art to that. <laughs> there's a, and you're right about the different concerns in different places. I mean, in some places it may be, it may be public transport. Maybe hmm. people really want to get out of their cars because it's expensive, buying the petrol, and they can see it's polluting for their children, but they, yeah. they just don't have the public transport and mm. kind of maybe getting that get, getting that message across and seeing what, what what could be done at that particular local level working with the local council could make a big difference and actually that's that's another big theme at the moment in climate change research is um locating policy action in in cities in localities mm. more than at the national level and i think there's an element of romanticism in there i'm not entirely uh, sold on the idea but i think there's definitely something in there is kind of sh- you know shaping your policies to fit to fit the concerns of the local community will make mm. it a lot more likely um to be acceptable and indeed effective yeah and uh, with a uh, less backlash potentially and less yeah. you know, you'd have people who are hopefully more invested in what's happening in, mm. in some of those local changes because you're making mm. me think just as a slight tangent the the whole gilet jaune movement in france yeah, right, about yeah. the protests, yellow, yellow vests, which, yeah. which, yeah, sorry, the yellow vests, uh, which essentially was triggered by the attempt to raise, you know, diesel diesel duties, which was slightly couched as a as, as a climate change climate measure, change. Yeah. you know, to help meet the Paris Agreement goals, and mm. basically caused rioting throughout France, discontinuing um, today, and that just goes to show what happens if you don't really explain what you're doing and you don't take into account the real concerns and constraints that that communities face yeah that's right and then it's you know, it's not enough just to wrap wrap something in a in a climate wrapper that doesn't mean it's going to be accepted by by yeah, any means that's right yeah and it's it's also you can understand that backlash if mm. you if you approach it from well no the, these you know raising the cost of fuel really does have an impact like on people's lives directly yes and so if you're going to do that you know it, it and again i'm not criticizing any specific way that this has been approached i'm not knowledgeable enough about it to do it but right. i'm just you know it, and I, so i don't have like a great solution for it i'm not trying to sound like that but the um you, you really you, you can't be dismissive like we were saying earlier yes. you can't just say oh well this will fix climate and oh the rest it'll just sort itself out mm. um, because there are you know real people who are going to be affected by your decisions 
and getting back again to the start of our conversation where like there are folks who are very anxious about heavy-handed government intervention mm-hmm. for exactly mm-hmm. that reason because it, it can have an impact on their lives and it can disrupt things and <clears throat> you can understand yes. why somebody would be would be anxious and uh, maybe not trusting um, of that kind of intervention exactly it, it doesn't you know it doesn't mean you have to take that option off the table because it needs to be part of your toolkit. That's right. But you have to do it with really great care okay. and really great. I mean, I don't even know how you get that fine level of you know of, of care and and uh, and and res- respecting the real constraints of the system. Well, there's, and, there's, and I mean, there's people, a lot of work in terms of you know, you know smart policies and mm, policy implementation and yep. local consultation. But interestingly, actually, a lot of it does come down to um, a local focus, mm-hmm. actually. And to to consultation, um, to to listening, and yeah, good policy design. I mean, yeah. there's, there's better and worse ways of of, of implementing these yeah. policies that, yeah. that you're right that have to be put in place. You know, we do have to raise diesel mm. duties to limit the amount of <laughs> driving yeah. of diesel cars that people do. But there, there are better and worse ways of doing it. Yeah. Well, do you mind if we shift gears? Usually about this point, we shift gears and talk more about kind of people's pathways, you know, into sure. you know, the kind of the... Um, so you are... Could you remind me the institute name you're at? I, I keep half remembering oh, it and then I keep <laughs> getting it wrong. wrong. The Sorry, Center no. for Environment, Energy and Natural Resource Governance, right. which is part of... Okay. No, not part of it. It's... It, it, um, Synergy, synergy is the nice is the nice acronym, mm-hmm. and it includes a bunch of researchers from different university departments and from outside mm-hmm. the university, which now includes me because now okay. I've, I've um, moved on from my central university role to focus on my work as editor of the journal Climate Policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you still hold that role. As yeah, a yes, I'm still fellow. a fellow. I'm still a fellow there. <clears> yes, so absolutely. in that way, you still have you're under that. You're still Under part of the university. Under that umbrella. Um, yeah, but you yes. have a, a different role now that is... Yeah, yes. okay, okay. So how, does the editing, does that, like, do you feel like that's your primary job these days? Does that take that up a That is my primary of, job these days, uh, plus other, other consultancies on climate change mm. issues. Um, but I think the, the editorship is really very, very interesting and very useful in enable, enabling me just to keep my finger on the pulse of all the different research that's out there and what are the main research themes that are up and coming. Yeah. It forces me to read all the papers, which I think many (laughs) researchers would like to have time to read the papers and I actually do get to do it. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's one of the things I I like, you know, we end up reviewing papers, of course. And like, I, I actually like that opportunity to review a paper because I know, to be honest, that is almost the only time when I really sit down and read the whole thing, you know, from, from top to bottom. It's interesting, really isn't it? to think about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I imagine as, as editor, I don't know if you have time to, you know, I mean, your, your job, from what I understand, an editor, you know, they, they are reading the papers that are coming in, but they, their big job is to get it off to reviewers yes. and to get that and to synthesize both the paper and the information from reviewers and the responses from the authors and to get a sense of what would be a good profile of articles in a journal and you know the, you, yeah but the the, you know. the, pa- the papers that we publish every single one of them i will have read every yes. word yeah the yeah. ones that we publish yeah. the, the, the one the ones that get rejected along the way i admit i, I won't have read them right. totally in detail but certainly before publication i make sure i read every yeah. single word well, yes that makes sense that's like that's a, that's a triage approach which seems very yeah. sensible yeah <laughs> like well i have a finite amount of time so yes. I'm, I'm only going to invest in the time that the, the, the articles that are actually going to appear yeah no, that that makes sense so is it are these articles i had a quick kind of look around i mean is it um 
to, to what extent are they quantitative? How much quantitative stuff is in there, or uh, like a qualitative versus quantitative sort of approach? You know, is that is yeah that a fair question? Is that I mean we. Because we're a policy journal, we want to make sure that what people write will be understandable to a policy audience um, or to maybe experts in one field who are dipping into another field. Um, So we encourage papers to not be too technical and not be too quantitative. However, however, um, a significant proportion of our papers are based on modelling and that obviously will be quite quantitative hmm. um but we we'd like the beginning and the results and the end to then always come back to qualitative hmm. kind of analysis even though it's based on the quantitative um elements so i'd say maybe maybe about half will have a significant quantitative hmm. element to it but okay. as as social scientists we rec- we recognize that qualitative research can be um just as rigorous if done well as yeah. anything that has numbers. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I, I hope it didn't sound like, you know, I wasn't putting one down over the other. I was just curious about the kind of profile. Well, it is, the, the, this is what I like about our journal is it's actually a very, a very wide uh, breadth. So mm-hmm. we look at, you know, the public communication of climate policies, as well as, you know, the latest economic models and what they're coming out with, you know, an element of an analysis of the negotiations, mm. which is always inherently um, qualitative um, adaptation projects, policy implementation, what policies have worked, what haven't, what ha- those that haven't. It's, it's that whole that whole suite of yeah. of elements that make up, you know, the, the complicated landscape of, of the response to, to climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got to admit, that's an area that seems really interesting to me, but I know very, very little about it in terms of, you know, the, well, the modeling side of it and the, yes. you know, how, how do you rigorously analyze a conversation, <laughs> like a, a policy oh, kind of conversation? Oh, yes, there's lots of papers you know. on that. I mean, to be honest, there's, there's nobody <laughs> on this planet that really understands all of climate yeah. research. Yeah. I mean, not anymore. I mean, there might have been... Hmm. you know 25 30 years ago but there really isn't now and sometimes i'm slightly um you know taken aback by just the sheer volume of research that is coming out on climate change uh, responses and you kind of hope that somehow this does have an impact on on policy and i and i I Hmm. think i think it does to a large extent i mean it's the age-old uh debate and conundrum as to what extent academics can really influence policy i mean maybe that's not something that you specifically try and do because you're on the hard science side yeah but certainly uh, the people that write for my journal i would say a lot of them would really hope that mm. their work would then somehow feed into policy making processes because a lot of what they try and do is come out with ideas or recommendations or insights yes. that should be useful for policymakers. and how you then communicate that and get that across is is an age-old difficulty yeah i think in my field i think that about the best we can do is to say oh well my my report my uh, paper got you know cited in the ipcc report or it led to a development uh, an improvement of a model that was later used in the ipcc report you know i think that's about as good as we can do in terms of it feeds into that into that big document um but like you said that's because we're working with the the physics fundamentals yeah side of it yeah so the what was your? I'm kind of. I'm curious about your pathway, you know, into that role and into that, um, in, into the kind of work that you do now. So I, I, I saw you were at UCL at some point. Was that? I did my PhD know? at UCL. Yeah. Um, I did my undergraduate here in Cambridge. Um, 
I guess my, my the, the starting point of my interest in climate change always was around the negotiation process. Mm. So around the um, climate change politics and about the sheer mechanics of getting 190 plus countries together mm. and get them to produce yeah. um, a comprehensive, understandable, <laughs> effective outcome. And that was what my PhD was on, was how the Kyoto Protocol negotiations were organised and the extent to which that was effective and how negotiations could be made more effective. So hmm. I always came at it from that negotiations um, standpoint. Hmm. And I, I worked for some years with the UN Climate Change Secretariat and I've stayed connected with them all this time mm. through various projects and, 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 and personal connections. Mm. Yeah. But then I was, then I was a researcher in, in Cambridge for quite a long time, mm. um, as on a part-time basis. And then, and then this editing job, um, came up mm. and, and I must say, I, I, it's, you know, it's a three-year contract and I think, I think it's just great, great to, to keep me up to date mm. with, with the literature. Yeah, no, it must be because it's yeah. literally you're, you're reading. And it still gives me time to write to write my own papers. I mean, mm. I, I've still tried to carry on publishing now and again. Yeah, and there's so something about the conversation aspect of it or the political aspect of it kind of kind of appealed to you for whatever reason, and and you had an opportunity to explore that and to dig into yes. that. And, yes, yeah. um, because it's interesting. So I've seen it being um a mem- be- being on the staff of the of the united nations are very much um in those negotiations where every single comma that you manage to agree mm-hmm. is a you know is a huge triumph and that in itself is a little bubble i've seen it um as a researcher you know when i was um a research fellow and an affiliated lecturer at uh, politics and social studies and that academia itself can be a little bit of a bubble and a different bubble that yes. doesn't necessarily interact with the UN negotiations yeah, bubble. Yeah. And now I guess as an editor, I feel I'm, I'm hoping that I'm straddling a few hmm. bubbles, maybe trying to get them to connect to some extent with hmm. each other. Does that mirror some of the, you know, you mentioned getting different countries to talk to each other. I don't know. Maybe you learned something about how to get different groups to talk to each other while watching. Well, there that is that as well. And also showcasing, showcasing um, parts of the world and areas that are really rarely talked about or mm. thought about because the overwhelming um, majority of the literature and the political attention focuses on, you know, Europe, the US, yeah. China, yeah. conceivably India. But I don't think anyone has a clue what's happening in Vietnam or Turkey or mm. Pakistan, which are hugely important countries in terms of both their emissions right now, their aggregate emissions right now, and potential for growth. Yeah, it's, And it's, I guess it's quite, I, I quite like it if I get a paper coming through exploring these kind of lesser known issues. Mm. And, you know, they're not always up to scratch because maybe it's coming from communities that don't have much experience of international publishing, but I quite like to see if we could try and get it out there mm. into, into the, 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 the research community so that we can, we can expand our knowledge of, of climate change and what's working mm. and what isn't. Yeah. So there are researchers working in those areas, but for whatever reason, they're not quite as plugged into the... Well, there's fewer, the, there's a few, lot fewer, fewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. working in, in those areas. Mm. And exactly for whatever reason, their research is maybe staying, you know, domestically and national and not really making it into the mm. international academic sphere when it really, really needs to be. It needs to be. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's great that, that um, you've had that pathway and that, that opportunity to continue exploring that. That's um, it's, it's really good. I like to... Um, not that we have to 
end, you know, I, I like to keep these things open and we can talk, you know, as long as we want. Um, but I, I like to ask everyone a set of questions about, you know, what's something you've learned about academia? What's something you've learned about research? So I have like a, a short set of these that we can kind of go through. And um, as a, it's not really a lightning round. When I say a lightning <laughs> round, I mean, um, I, I'll try, I, I'm brief in terms of how I ask it. And then you feel free to take, you know, as much time as you want. So, um, yeah, why don't we just start with that one? What's something you have learned about academia, you know, navigating this kind of bizarre world that we live in? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this as I was cycling here. Um, I think academia, it's a real privilege to be in academia mm -hmm. and to have time to really think about things and to analyse and to um, develop and present ideas and to hatch out ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe academics who haven't been in the policy environment don't realise quite what a what a privilege that is. Mm. And it's 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 so important, I think, to the development of ideas. I often hear policymakers express frustration at what they see as a disconnect between academia and the real world. But in a sense, that disconnect is really important because it's only really academics who are to some extent disconnected who can take that <laughs> objective mm. view. Because I remember that when I was working with the UN, as I say, I used to imbue immense importance into you know, the tiniest of, of advances. And then when I left and joined um, UCL at the time, and I could take a step back and be more objective, I was almost embarrassed and ashamed at um, the extent to which we were in a little, in mm. little mm. negotiation um, bubble. So I think academia has a tremendous role to play in a sense in really putting things into, into context. And also I think in seeing the wood for the trees, because mm -hmm. I think when you're in the kind of policy environment or the international environment, um, the forces that you're playing with are very much um, individual, you know, you people and very specific, small proposals. Yeah. And you don't necessarily have in mind the broader forces hmm. that are at work, you know, the geopolitical trends, you know, economic forces. And you, you, you never really step back and actually look at those. Hmm. And that's really the role of academia is to, in a sense, induce some humility, I think, into into model policymakers hmm. by presenting the bigger picture um, of what they're doing. So it's a very privileged position that hmm. academics have to be able to do that. Yeah. So you're saying a lot of the kind of on the ground, on the ground um, negotiating and on the ground, the kind of day to day stuff that's happening that could be influenced by, you know, oh, well, this delegate didn't have enough for breakfast. And so they're a little yeah. bit irritable. And like, <laughs> yeah. You know, or the personalities you know, or the delegate from the U.S. really doesn't get on with the delegate from the Philippines, by way yeah. of example. So that they can fall down these kind of rabbit holes potentially mm. of, well, well, we're stuck in this specific point because mm. of an interpersonal dynamic. Yeah. And, you know, but academics in the room can maybe keep pointing to. Well, large, no, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't really work that way. No. But I mean, the, but the academics can kind of maybe try and make sense of that yeah. Um, yeah. a little bit more. I mean, there, there is a problem with with a disconnect. I mean, academics do not influence the negotiations okay. directly okay. at all. Okay. 
They're not really in, in the room. Whatsoever. You know, we're talking more in terms of standing back and standing like, back yeah. and, and you know and, and, and decades of you know informing yeah. uh, with, with background research and you hope the policymakers look at it. Commentary. Yeah. Commentary. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, I would say the academics do have a responsibility. Um, to also try and understand the minutiae of negotiation hmm. and policy-making processes in order to build up um, pictures of how these things happen that aren't completely divorced from reality as well and not just dependent <clears throat> on big abstract forces. And I think there is a danger that if an academic working on the negotiations has never been to a COP, yeah, then they really will not be able to fully appreciate mm. and understand what is going on. And therefore, maybe the analyses they do put forward will actually be, to some extent, irrelevant. Sounds like we need some translators. We need translators. Different communities. Yeah. Yes, we do need translators. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Mm. And that does happen. That is increasingly happening. And I think that the, the greater openness of the negotiations now in terms of the, you know, the, the webcasts and, you know, all the social media, all the commentary, all the blog posts, that does help. To some extent, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, what's um? How about something you've learned about um? Uh, oh my gosh, my brain just stopped. Sorry, it happens uh, about once a podcast. My brain just you know it hits a wall. <laughs> well, and I need been a talking a while, probably out. getting tired. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what's what's something you've learned about research then, which can be different from academia? You know, there's research in terms of you know digging into a topic and writing about it and communicating. Yeah, I think the things you know, are. On the one hand, things are a lot more complicated. On the other hand, a lot more simple um, than than one thinks. I think when you start to dig beneath, to really dig into policy making processes, it's amazing at how many different levels you can analyse them and how much is going on. Mm. And I think I'm always surprised at this interplay between you know the large macro level forces and the real tiny minutiae exactly you were thinking and you hit your nail on the head you know what did so and so have for breakfast that morning or um <laughs> yeah so and so doesn't get on with, with with this person and you see this with the case studies that we have in our journal about very specific policies that tried to be implemented in particular localities and which worked or didn't and the message that keeps coming on all the time is issues of communication mm. between different government departments you know we're talking here maybe in, a, in, a, in one city where a, a department consists of three people but the communication between that department and the next door department the fact that wasn't working mm. and therefore that put spanners in the works of this policy um, really being effective it's always communication it's always leadership and it's always personnel mm. so you have these policies which on paper look absolutely brilliant and are really in line with economic trends and what the politics say should be working mm. and then that on the ground they don't work or maybe they do work brilliantly because everything was put into place mm. so it's so I, I guess this is what research is really coming out with is is how then we can manage these different forces at mm. different levels to come out with effective policies mm. and we sort of have have this issue actually in the journal is to what extent do we publish very small micro level case studies yeah, because actually it might not be interesting to very many people mm. what happened in this one town in the Philippines over their adaptation policy. Mm. I mean, uh, but actually it is of supreme importance because it, mm. because it is really highlighting these small dynamics that really will make a big difference um, mm. elsewhere. Yeah. 
so that's but how about you personally you know if you wanted to your own personal approach to research what's what have you learned about um, well the importance you know, of taking of, into of your... account these macro level forces and the smaller level forces oh the macro and the micro yeah okay yeah? so when you're so you're saying that when you're kind of def- deciding or when you're drawing the boundaries of uh, what you know research area you want to think about and what problem you want to tackle yeah so for example that's, for example that's part of how you draw, draw the boundaries yeah completely completely <clears throat> so for example um i wrote a paper with one of my old students about um latin america in the climate change negotiations and about the different latin american um coalitions and the different approaches that they had so there because I was aware of these macro micro level processes, we, we included some discussion of very specific individuals, individuals, people yeah. with names, <laughs> yeah, that, that were driving a particular approach, as well as much broader historically informed um, narratives yeah. within Latin America that dated back to colonial times. Yes, yeah? so what we tried to, tried to, to do was to weave together how the particular approach of the Latin American coalitions, whose names are Alba on the one hand and ILAC on the other, how they had um, different approaches to the climate change negotiations, partly because they had different individuals with particular views, but also partly because they were buying into mm. different narratives of what Latin America should be as a continent, oh, which dated yeah. back to colonial times and were also mm. to do with different, very concrete economic relationships um, with the US and maybe an outward-looking economy as opposed to an inward-looking socialist economy. So we really, Mm. to understand how those coalitions performed in the climate change negotiations, we had to go, as I say, all the way down from one particular person and what she was like, all the way through to these historical narratives. And Mm. I don't think you can understand a particular social phenomenon. Maybe you can understand a notion, but you can't understand a particular social phenomenon without putting those things into play at different levels you need all the skills in the ocean too Pres- you need oh, the, well there the you go the there you go well. yes yeah. <laughs> it's a multi-scale problem and all yeah. the scales interact with all the other scales and you have to yeah that's part of what makes it non-linear that's and complex right. and interesting and then maybe as a geographer maybe i was trained as an undergraduate geographer to understand the importance of scale so you, you mm. hit the nail on the head mm. is that mm. word scale yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's really interesting to think of scale as also existing in that specific you know policy domain yeah of, yeah, yeah. yeah. small so scale interactions yeah. large scale social forces economic forces that's right nar- narratives that have existed for a while and, and over time and <clears throat> they're very immediate yeah. as well yeah. yeah it's uh harder to wrap it up in a number and put it on the graph but it's still there and it's still you have exactly to talk about it, you know? yeah. exactly and that's yeah. why i'm <clears throat> always suspicious of research that is purely quantitative <laughs> it's like yeah but put it into context yeah <laughs> um how about writing? What's something you've learned about writing for you, you personally? Is that something you, you do you enjoy the writing process? I love the, writing, love the process. writing process. And you know what? I always say you never completely understand something until you've actually had to, to, to write it through. Hmm. And that's always something I think in negotiations as well. I remember my, my, my first boss said to me, you know what? All these countries are talking, they're all debating, and they, there seems to be some kind of consensus between them, but just wait until it's on paper. You never know until you've mm. got a consensus until it's actually on paper. Yeah. And then the words are so important in, in, in a negotiation. Mm. I mean, ultimately, at the international level, it is at the climate change regime level, it's all about reaching agreement on words. It's not actually reach agreement about what you're actually going to do. It really is very much about the words. Then the words get taken away and they will almost certainly be interpreted in, in, in different ways. Yes. So I guess I have that training in the negotiations of really understanding how important a word is. And I really carry that through to my mm. own my own research, the own my own papers that I write, which I will obsess about 
whether a particular word makes sense or not. And maybe that's why I enjoy the editing, because I will also require that of my authors who maybe get a bit annoyed with me sometimes when I <laughs> keep sending back versions to them saying, no, you haven't, I'm, I'm not sure this quite this quite works. You're having to keep a lot of different audiences in mind in yes. that work. Yeah, and I yes. think uh, maybe that's one advantage that we have in, in science is that we know we're mostly talking to other scientists mm. you know, when we're writing a paper. I mean, I think it's important that the... <clears throat> sorry, I've got a little... The, the thing that I like to try to do is, uh, whenever I can, is uh, I like to try to make stuff as, as understandable to somebody who's just starting as it is to somebody who has been in the field for a long time. You know, it, it's too easy to write a paper where you start throwing around yes. a bunch of concepts that, to you and yeah, your colleagues, they seem well established. But you know, it's it's it's. I always like to try to keep those folks in mind who are like, no, no, they're just starting. You know, you yeah. can't just throw baroclinic instability around without you know at least kind of yeah. pointing to. Uh, uh, the, what does that mean and <clears throat> where's a more basic paper they could go to get some of the introduction to that sort of thing but you're having to keep many many different audiences of different um, with different backgrounds and different yes. narratives in their head you know in mind when you're considering the wording for your articles and for your journal well, I think that's great if, if, if <clears throat> what you do is try and make your papers as accessible as possible I think that's brilliant and you are in a rather small minority in, in being generous <laughs> I'm not in that saying respect all... but it's very it's very very important <clears throat> I'm not saying I'm always successful but I, I try no, to well, that's the, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. all have our we all have our jargon and I think it's a shame if we end up in tiny little niches where what we write is really only understandable mm. to you know 50 or 100 other people yeah then we're all writing a lot and not reading yeah. each other's writing we're just you know putting words onto the internet and there's no hope <laughs> for, for the policymakers. yeah that's right and it, it's hard to boil that down and distill that down if it's not clear to start with you yes. know, to your science colleagues then yes. it's impossible to get boiled down yeah absolutely um well i was is there anything else you want to talk about? I mean, it's it's been a really good conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And yes, I've so have appreciated I. Your, your time. Oh, well, we could keep going know. all day, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's easy to actually <laughs> just keep keep talking and keep going back and forth. Um, I don't know about when you usually eat lunch, though. I, I, I no, like I think to it's keep probably coming up for lunchtime. Probably, probably yes. pretty close to lunchtime. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I was trying to think if there's another um, you know, uh, question about anything that you've learned. I guess those are the big ones. I um, forgot my notebook today, and uh, so I'm a little bit just flying, <laughs> flying by the seat of my pants uh, somewhat. But um, but uh, it's been fine. It hasn't been an, an, an impediment until now when I thought, I think there's one more, right? Uh, we did academia, research, writing. No, I guess, I guess oh, like presenting. We usually sometimes, what's something you learned about, you know, presenting? Because you, you were um, at the IPCC event, you know, a couple of months ago. You seem to be very comfortable in front of everybody and just talking and, you know, uh, I mean... I, well, I, I, I academics really, get a lot of practice with that, I guess. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I love presenting. And I guess one thing that I have learnt is that you should not overestimate what the audience knows. And I think especially oh, yeah, yeah. for climate change, because there is the danger because it's a kind of household issue and everyone knows a little bit of something about climate mm. change. But you mustn't assume too much knowledge because people will know quite a bit about one specific thing, but they won't necessarily have... Not all your orders will be on the same page. Yeah, yeah? That's so right. you can't just, as you say, you know, drop in know the Paris Agreement and the COP and the Copenhagen mm. and just assume that people know. You do actually have to make sure that, that you're keeping everybody with you yes. as you go through. Yeah. So sure. on the other hand, you don't really want to start from the very, you know, the very beginning and then you know spend ten minutes before you get to the real mm. crux of what you're trying to say. So I think there is a skill in that in just making sure that that everybody that, that you provide enough 
basic materials that everybody is on the same page yeah. before you then plunge into uh, more more complex concepts. But I mean, yeah. I, I'm lucky because yeah, everyone is interested in climate change and everyone is interested hmm. in climate politics. So it doesn't really take very much to to capture the audience's um, attention. Yeah, well, that reminds me of I, I met. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I mentioned this in the last episode, but. Um, one of my old professors liked to say, well, when you give a talk, uh, give them about 60% of what they already know and then just mm. add your bit on top of that. And that yes. way, so people have a much easier time, you know, digesting that 40% or 30% or whatever you want it to be. You, you know, it's, it's too hard if you come at somebody with 100% new yes. information. They're not really going to be able to soak all that in. No, that's a good, you know, actually. I like yeah. that. So that's a good maxim, yes. And then it's always interesting, the questions that you get afterwards. And I mm. found you can never predict <laughs> what it is that you've said that the audience will somehow pick up on mm. and want to want to expand. And for me, that's always by far the most interesting and stimulating mm. part of an event are the questions. And maybe we're, again, lucky here in Cambridge because we always have, you know, a well-informed audience. Mm. Um, but that's that's always, I think, where you have by far the most interesting points come up. Mm. Yeah, and the questions. Yeah, and that's... That's a conversation. That's actually well, that's more it. dynamic and interesting and, and back it. and forth. And I think that's important. That's yes. critical. Yeah. Yeah. Having that yeah. openness and that real dialogue. Because mm. we can, you know, we can easily sit in our offices and construct something that sounds perfectly wonderful to yeah. us. But yeah. until you, you know, put the rubber on the road, so to speak, and really see how it works in front of a, a group of people or how, how different people's uh, yeah. you know, minds react to it, you won't, you're not really going to know if it's an effective yeah. or well-constructed uh, set of ideas or not that's right that's right i think to a large extent that kind of oral presentation talking to people is more effective in communication than the written papers yeah because i think somebody should do a survey but i mean i, I wouldn't be surprised if people just don't read academic papers mm-hmm. anymore yeah maybe they, they don't read but also um part of that may be that the language in a lot of articles has mm. to be so like you the said drive, for good for good yeah. reason you obsess about the, the wording and making sure nobody's going to misinterpret it. Whereas when we're speaking, yeah, we're, we're a little bit more colloquial, a little bit more, yes. you know, just relaxed and casual. Yeah. And so I think when you talk like that, sometimes it's easier for people to get the gist of what you're saying. Yes. They might not get exactly the specific thing, but they'll get the gist easier than if they're trying to read your paper. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yes. Cause, yeah. Cause yeah. We've, we've couched in, when you write a paper, you couch everything so carefully. And That's so, right. you know, with uh, all the caveats very carefully, you know, outlined and yes, just, all the asterisks, and it's, <laughs> yeah, and it, it, which is too much to take in on a first reading, you mm. know, yeah, mm. or a first attempt to digest something. Um, this part of um, some of our journals have started introducing; they, they have an abstract and then a plain language abstract. Yes, so you're supposed to write, you know, as, as simply as you can, kind of repeat your abstract, but put it in just. Uh, you know, layman's term, so to speak, that anybody could yes. uh, digest in some way. Um, uh, we have um, you know. a climate policy. We have the so the academic mm-hmm. abstract. Then we have a key policy insights. Oh, okay. So there's mm. supposed to be three to five bullets. Right. Yeah. yeah. Drawing out what are your main messages for policymakers mm. is actually very interesting. How some of the authors find that really difficult to do. Sometimes mm. I have to go backwards and forwards three or four times until they really grasp actually. What, what what I mean by that. Yeah. And it's actually quite a good discipline. It's like, actually, what are you trying to say? Yep. Because it, uh, it might not be... We don't necessarily practice that. No. Time, do we? we don't practice... We practice the other thing, where you make everything super careful Very, and have yeah. all your asterisks in place. Quite long-winded. You know, yeah, yes. yeah. That's right. We don't practice boiling things down very much. Yeah. yeah. It's not until you go to write the key points 
or the plain language abstract. Yeah, that that is that is a hard part. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, that's okay. good. Well, yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. It's been really good. And again, um, feel free. Is there anything else you want to talk about? And how are you feeling about the conversation? You know, no, it's all yeah. great. Yeah, it's, it's all great. Good. Yeah, yeah, all good. Well, thanks so much for your time. I, I learned a lot, and I, I appreciate the time with you. And, I've, learned, <laughs> I've learned a lot as well about oceanography. Thank you very oh, much, Dan. Thanks. Okay. Well, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's it. There you have it. My conversation with Dr. Joanna Deplich. You can find her on Twitter again at Joanna Deplich. She just has her name as her handle. And you can get updates about the podcast at Climate Sci Pod on Twitter. So thanks again to Dr. Deplich for her time and for her insights and for that really, um, really good conversation. I really appreciated it. Okay, so again, uh, I might have to go monthly with these in the not-too-distant future. I will let you know how that goes. But in the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Uh, thanks for leaving reviews and ratings. That does help us. That does help the podcast. Uh, and when I say us, I always mean me and my guests. Uh, I don't just mean uh, the, the bizarre royal we. I, I don't really talk like that. Um, yeah, so that's all for now, and uh, I'll just um, keep updating these as much as I can. And in the future, we have uh, Professor Laura Zana. We have a conversation with with her recorded, and I'm also hoping to speak with uh, someone about the Climate Communications Project, uh, Dr. Sam Illingsworth. I'll keep you updated on those. Talk to you later. I hope everything is going all right with you. Take care, and uh, get in touch if you have any f feedback. Take care. Bye-bye.